0: Ezekiel chapter 40 and we hope to study through to chapter 43 and I hope that you've read the chapters before you've come this evening because we're we'll not of time to read them or to deal with everything within them but it's good that you would have a basic head knowledge of the gist of what God is saying through the prophet. We'll read uh, chapter 40 verses 1 to 4 to begin with and then a few verses from chapter 43 and we're dealing this evening if you haven't already guessed with the Millennial Temple. Verse 1 of chapter 40. In the five and 20th year of our captivity, in the beginning of the year, in the 10th day of the month, in the 14th year, after that, the city was smitten. And just to paraphrase that a little bit, that date is the start of the preparation for the Passover. That may make it a bit easier for you to understand. On that day, the start of the beginning of the preparation for the Passover, the city of Jerusalem was smitten. In the self-same day, the hand of the Lord was upon me. And brought me thither, in the visions of God brought he me into the land of Israel. Note that, underline that, to the land of Israel. And set me upon a very high mountain, probably Mount Zion, by which was a frame of a city on the south. And he brought me thither, and behold, there was a man whose appearance was like the appearance of brass, with a line of flax in his hand and a measuring reed, and he stood in the gate. And the man said unto me, Son of man, behold with thine eyes and hear with thine ears, and set thine heart upon all that I shall show thee, for lo the intent, or for to the intent that I might show them unto thee, art thou brought hither. Declare all that thou seest to the house of Israel. And then from verse five right through to the end of chapter forty-two. You have the description of this temple in great detail that we will look at in a few moments. But I want to bring you to chapter 43 in verse 1 now. After this man that was covered in bronze, as it seemed, with the measuring rod in his hand, showed Ezekiel all the extent of this millennial temple, where it would be, and all the services concerning it, he now comes in verse 1. And we see here a sight that is really a blessed sight. When you recall everything that we have learned of the judgment that has come upon Israel for their sin. Verse 1. Afterward he brought me to the gate, even the gate that looketh toward the east. That's important. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel came from the way of the east. And his voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with his glory. And it was according to the appearance of the vision which I saw, even according to the vision that I saw when I came to destroy the city. And the visions were like the vision that I saw by the river Kibar, and I fell upon my face. Do you remember the vision he saw in chapter 1? He's seeing it again. And the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate whose prospect is toward the east. That's important. So the spirit took me up and brought me into the inner court. And behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And I heard him speaking unto me out of the house. And the man stood by me. We turn back to chapter 40. We have in these chapters, 40 through to 43. And in fact, right through to the end of chapter 48, the manifestation of the glory of God. This is... Great major prophet really is concerned primarily with the theme of the glory of God, the Lord Jehovah. We learned how in the beginning of this book, the glory of the Lord departed from the temple because of the sin of the people. And now we've entered into the final section of this book, where is depicted for us a future restoration of the children of Israel. The national ethnic people of God will be restored. And we're seeing it in these chapters as the glory, the Shekinah, shining glory of God, returns to the temple. The chapters that we look at tonight, verse uh, chapter 40 through to chapter 43, depicts for us a new temple. We'll be looking at that new millennial temple this evening. But later we hope again in another evening, chapters 44 to 46 depict a new worship a different type of worship that will take place within the Millennial Temple. And then the final chapters, 47 and 48, depict for us a new land. In fact, not a specific new land, but a new layout to the land of Israel, the tribes, where they will all be laid out, and indeed we'll see in a further week, where this Millennial Temple will find itself in the new land of Israel. Now these next chapters that we're looking at specifically tonight, contain the details for a temple that will be erected in a future day in the city of Jerusalem. Before we begin this study, let me say that there are many, and I freely admit, many difficult things about the study of the Millennial Temple. And I don't stand here this evening and try to tell anybody that I understand everything. There are many great questions, but before we start, we've got to, as we have done in previous weeks, lay our interpretive foundation. What I mean by that is how we are looking at these passages, how we are understanding them. And the reason why I say that is because there are several biblical fundamentalists and conservative biblical scholars who do not interpret these verses as a literal temple at a future day in the literal city of Jerusalem belonging to literal Israel. In fact there's a great deal of scholars that see it as a symbol a a prophetic symbol albeit of of the Christian church that we inhabit today and that is a, a very common interpretation of these verses that we look at tonight but there are many others and people make the mistake of thinking that there are only two it's either a literal temple or it's the Church of Jesus Christ in some kind of spiritual form there are many other interpretations For instance, some believe that this temple spoken of by Ezekiel is a memorial to the temple that was destroyed when the Babylonians came and took the land captive. We've seen that in this book. The temple was destroyed. And they think that this description is some kind of memorial to a temple that is now being destroyed. There's a great problem with that. First of all, because of the prophetic nature of these verses and chapters that indicate that it seems that there will be a literal temple one day, but more than that, Ezekiel didn't need to make a memorial for Solomon's temple that had been destroyed because the book of Kings, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles do just that. So why would the Holy Spirit do it again? There are others who believe that this temple is the temple that was built after captivity, not Solomon's one that was destroyed, But Zerubbabel's one that was built after the captivity, uh, that great temple. But we read, and we've learned in the book of Haggai, that the people wept because uh, the glory of the first house was better than this one. And it speaks that the glory of the latter house would be greater than the former. In other words, that there was another temple coming one day that would be greater than all of these other temples. The main fact that it cannot be the temple that was rebuilt after captivity is the fact that there are more differences between Ezekiel's temple here than there are similarities between it and the temple after captivity. Therefore, some get around it by saying, well, this is the temple they should have built. (laughs) This is the way the temple should have been built, but they failed to do it. And the greatest problem with that is primarily this, that that means that God's prophecy through Ezekiel has been unfulfilled. Really, God's prophecy has failed. We can't go down that road, obviously. And of course, as I've already said, others say that these are the spiritual blessings of God's church. Let's analyze that for a minute. That cannot, as far as I can see, be the case simply because it does not explain the symbolism that we find within this passage if it was representing the church it's very strange that it never mentions the day of atonement that is the type of the death of the lord jesus christ on the cross it's very funny that it doesn't represent the, the feast of weeks that is also typical Uh, and relational to the church of Jesus Christ. It's very strange that it doesn't outline in any way the ministry of the great high priest, our Lord Jesus Christ, that the whole book of Hebrews uh, has as a theme, how he carries out his ministry. You would think that all of those three things at least would be primary main themes if it was a future vision of the church of Jesus Christ. But none of those things are within this temple. More than that, I think we would have to go back in time and we would have to go back into our last Bible study which was the book of Ephesians and we would have to say to Paul, I'm sorry Paul, uh, but you were wrong. You got it wrong. The revelation of the church, it wasn't given to you first, it was given to Ezekiel. The mystery of the church isn't really a mystery. We'd have to change verses in the book of Ephesians because it was shown to Ezekiel first. We learnt that a mystery was something that had been hidden before times and now had been revealed. Well, Paul, it was revealed to Ezekiel. You got it wrong. So you see, I hope that it, it has to be, surely it has to be a literal temple. The sad thing is I've been studying uh, this subject for some time now is that even some premillennial dispensationalists do not agree that this is a literal temple. And it feels me to see how we can interpret the book of Ezekiel up to now absolutely literally, all of Israel's sin, all of Israel's judgment, all of Israel's destruction, And all of a sudden, we change the goalposts and we spiritualize it near the end. But more than that, and here it's the key reason I believe it has to be a literal temple, the descriptions, the specifications, the measurements of this temple can only mean that it's going to be literal. They're so exhaustive that you can actually make a sketch or, or a diagram of it as you can of all the temples that have always been built in Israel. In fact, F. Gardner, in Ellicott's commentary on the whole Bible, he succeeds himself in sketching out a diagram and a layout of the Millennial Temple, yet all through his commentary and his prose, he denies that it is possible to build one. Yet he's able to make a sketch of it because of that one writer said if an uninspired commentator can make some sense out of an architectural plan doubtless the future builders working under divine guidance should have no trouble putting up the building themselves these things are difficult to understand but if you read exodus chapter 20 and the following chapters you will find that they're no more difficult to understand than the tabernacle was. we find it difficult because it it hasn't been seen yet by human eyes, and we find it difficult to understand. And I want us just for a few moments, and we've a lot to get through tonight, but I want us to take a look at all the temples of the Bible to understand a little bit the significance of this millennial temple and where it fits in. This millennial temple is the last of seven. Seven is a significant number, as you know, in Scripture, completeness and perfection. Perfection. It is the last of seven temples within the Word of God. The first temple is the tabernacle, if you like, in Exodus chapter 40 and following. It was from 1500 BC to 100 BC, and I'm sure you're familiar with that tabernacle in the wilderness where the people of God worshipped God when they were in the wilderness going to the promised land. Then the second temple is the temple of Solomon that you find described in 1 Kings 5 and through to chapter 8. It's from 1000 BC to 586 BC. We know all about that, the beauty of Solomon's temple, the great trouble and and money and expense and time that went into it. Then the third temple is the temple of Zerubbabel. That was the temple built after Solomon's temple was destroyed in the captivity that we're speaking of. And then Zerubbabel built this new temple... And that same temple, Zerubbabel's temple, was, if you like, fixed by King Herod. It was the same temple that King Herod inhabited and King Herod built. So you find uh, Zerubbabel's temple in Ezra chapter 6 and the same temple in John chapter 2 that the Lord Jesus Christ would have gone to. It was the same temple that was destroyed in 70 AD. It was the temple that the Lord went through and uh, turned over the money changers and so on. The fourth temple that we find in the Bible is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You remember he said, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it again. And he spoke concerning his body. We know that. And that temple was from 4 BC through to AD 30 when he died at Calvary at 33 years of age. The fifth temple is the spiritual temple of the church of jesus christ it is the temple that we are today it is the temple of god in other words where god dwells from pentecost where the church was formed in acts chapter 2 right through to the rapture where the church will be taken out of this scene of time and translated to glory and that temple is described as the whole church of Jesus Christ, every single believer, and Ephesians two twenty one, Paul describes it as living stones fitly joined together as a temple of God. So it describes first of all the whole church, but we find in First Corinthians three, and verses sixteen and seventeen, where Paul is speaking of of sin coming into the church. That the temple of God, that spiritual temple of the church today, is also the local church. And he, he calls that local church in Corinth, Ye are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So it is the whole worldwide universal church. It can also refer to the local church. And as we go further into Corinthians chapter 6 and verse uh, 19, we find that it can also apply to the individual Christian. Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Spur. three ways that we can describe this spiritual temple today that the Lord dwells in but then the sixth temple and it's important not to confuse this one with the millennial temple that we're looking at tonight but the sixth temple is the tribulational temple I believe that that is the temple spoken of in Revelation chapter 11 it is the temple where Antichrist will set himself up as God to be worshipped as God and to rule as God It is the temple in which will take place the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel and by our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are no drawings, there are no descriptions of this temple, but as we will see in just a moment, this temple is already being prepared in Jerusalem as we speak. And it will take place between the rapture of the church and the battle of Armageddon. And then there is the millennial temple spoken of here Chapter 40 through to 48, spoken of also. This is not the only book speaks of it. it speaks, spoken of by the prophet Joel in chapter 3, Isaiah chapter 2, chapter 60, Daniel chapter 9, and Haggai chapter 2. But I want you to just see how these things are coming to pass. We are this spiritual temple, the fifth temple. There are two more temples to be built as yet, and the sixth, the tribulational temple, at this moment is being prepared. I want you to watch just a clip now of a video. Elwood McQuaid is the preacher or the speaker, if you like. It's from the Friends of Israel, and I think that you'll find it very interesting as you see what is going on.
1: The subject of the temple is a troublesome topic for major elements in the Jewish community. Liberal Jews view the temple with its animal sacrifices as something of a national embarrassment. For many Orthodox Jews, however, the absence of the temple leaves them without a true sacrifice or a fulfilling worship experience. Earlier we walked along the brow of Mount Moriah. Now I have the privilege of standing on the exact spot where Israel's ancient temples once stood. Of course, the artifacts from those temples are many feet below us here on this level. However, there's no doubt in competent scholars' minds that this is actually where the Jewish people from all over the world came in ancient days to worship Jehovah. This rabbinic tunnel is adjacent to the western wall, many feet below street level. The tunnel continues until it reaches the Via Dolorosa. Facing east is an ancient entrance to the Temple Mount known as Warren's Gate. It was here in 1981 that rabbis Gorin and Getz began excavating in search of the Ark of the Covenant. Before they were able to complete their search, the entrance was sealed by Muslim and Israeli authorities. However, the rabbis remain firm in their conviction that the ark is buried in a protected vault nearby. Many people are interested in the location of the ark because to them it represents the very presence and power of God. In addition to those who are diligently searching for temple artifacts and remains from the past, others are preparing to build a new temple. Their determination would compare to that of Zerubbabel of old. Today. Overlooking the western wall is a room which some hope will play an important role as part of the new temple. When Rabbi Gorin uh, constructed this room, uh, what did he envision for this room to represent? He foresaw the rebuilding of the third temple when the Messiah comes. And this would be the place where the Sanhedrin or court of law would sit in this room. So we're actually sitting in the room envisioned by Rabbi Gorin. Uh, To house the new Sanhedrin and he fashioned this after the Sanhedrin in the temples correct exactly Uh, that's quite a vision there is no question about the fact that there is a rising of Messianic expectancy among grassroots people in Israel today this is reflected not only by what we see here but by other groups who are preparing independently uh, on their own account the Temple Institute, uh, which is not far from where we are today, is preparing implements for sacrificial worship, garments for the priests, and other things that pertain to worship at the new temple. Explain to us, would you please, the objectives of the Temple Institute.
0: Well, the Temple Institute really was founded with a unique goal in mind, and that is to try to raise the consciousness and awareness of people as much as possible towards the central role that the Holy Temple plays in the life of mankind and to actually try to do as much as possible about uh, building the temple in our time.
1: Now you believe that uh, God has uh, instructed you or led you to do this. Uh, What actually are you involved in? What actually are you doing in a physical way? what we
0: are doing at this point, uh, which is most remarkable actually, is the restoration of the vessels that can actually be used in the temple. They're made from the original material, whether it's gold, copper, silver, etc. And so really it's the first time that these things can be seen on the face of the earth for 2,000 years and they're ready for the resumption of the service of the temple. And This is actually considered like the first stage of building the temple itself.
1: There's another group called the faithful of the temple mount who have actually prepared a cornerstone for rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem. So we can conclude that despite overwhelming political and religious opposition, there is still a flurry of anticipation and activity going on right now in preparation for a new temple on Mount Moriah. But who are these groups that want to rebuild the temple? And what is their motivation? For the most part, they are Jewish people who promote strict adherence to the Old Testament Mosaic law. Their motivation is simple. Without the temple and the sacrificial system, they believe there is no way for them to atone for their sins. Their entire belief system requires the existence of the temple.
0: These things are coming to pass. You noticed how that Jewish gentleman and the Sanhedrin, the place where they want to hold the Sanhedrin, said, that this was for the building of the third temple. Obviously, they wouldn't recognize the tabernacle as the first temple. They don't recognize uh, this temple that we are, that the, the Holy Ghost inhabits today, and for them, it is the third temple. For us, it will be the sixth, the tribulational temple. Now, we want to look at the millennial temple. That temple will be destroyed when the Lord Jesus comes again to the Mount of Olives for Israel. Then a new temple will be built, the millennial temple, and that's what you have on the back of your sheet if you look at it this evening. But first of all, if you just turn it over to that diagram, but if you also look at verses 1 to 4 in chapter 40, you will see that there depicted for us is the man with the measuring rod. And Ezekiel is given the vision of the city of Jerusalem. That's important. This is not the church. He gets a vision of the city of Jerusalem. He sees a new temple. It's in the 14th year after Jerusalem was captured. And Ezekiel is taken up in visions and set on a very high mountain. Probably Mount Zion. And he is shown the city and the temple by a man whose appearance is like bronze. Probably an angel. He is told to fix his eyes and his mind on everything he sees. And to declare it to the house of Israel. Now please note. It is Jerusalem. It is Israel. It is Mount Zion. This is the earth. The Holy Ghost is speaking to us about the earth. It is different than the new Jerusalem that you find in Revelation 21. It is not the same. The new Jerusalem will be our eternal home, and indeed for all believers, in a new heaven and in a new earth. That is the eternal state. That is after the thousand-year reign of Christ. This has got nothing to do with it, this millennial temple. John tells us of that eternal state, the new heaven and the new earth, the new Jerusalem. He says, I saw no temple therein, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are the temple of it. There is no temple there. But here is a temple. We'll not need a temple in heaven, but there will be a temple on earth during the millennial reign of Christ, specifically for the Jewish people. Now that's a good tip in expositing the word of God. And we saw it yesterday as we were looking at the barren womb and the virgin birth. We saw that whenever scripture usually speaks of the earth, it is in relation to Israel. But when it speaks of heaven, it is in relation to the church of Jesus Christ. We are a heavenly people. Israel is God's earthly people. So there is the man with the measuring rod. And then he goes in verse 5 through to 47, your second point. He measures the outer and the inner courts. Now, first of all, he speaks in verses five through to sixteen of the east gate of the outer court. Now, if you look, if Paul would put up the second, the second overhead—that was the wrong one I put up there. Sorry, Paul. And you look at the back uh, of your diagram. And by the way, I've got rid of my uh, old stick. And somebody out of the Royal Victoria Hospital lent me this. But he starts here, if you can see it at the bottom. Now that is. East. If you look in your diagram, you have north, south, east, and west. But the gate, the very front, the temple is facing east. And the man with the measuring rod starts to measure there at the east gate. You can see that clearly in verse 5. And with this gate, the whole architectural description of the temple begins. And first he starts to describe the wall all the way around the outer court of the temple. Verse 5, that's where he begins. And then he speaks of the east gate of the outer court. And he begins, see this east gate here, he begins to describe that, this in great detail. Now, if Paul would put up number one, this is a blown up form of the east gate that he describes. Now, let's read together these facts. Look at verse six. Then he came unto me, unto the gate, which looketh toward the east, and went up the stairs, you can see the stairs there, and measured the threshold of the gate. That's the threshold there, T. The threshold of the gate. He measured it. And then every little chamber, verse 7, with one reed long, those little chambers, eh, these are all, this is still the gate of this millennial temple, as you can see from your diagram. He went on to the porch and the gate with one reed. There's the porch there entering into the temple. And he measures this, it, it too. He measured into the port with what one reed. Then he measures the porch of the gate, eight cubits, and the pots thereof, the posts thereof, a your pardon, two cubits, and the porch of the gate was inward. So in between these little alcoves, these are like pillars. And we we'll would see later that there will be set on these pillars palm trees. And this is only the gate of the millennial temple. He measures, verse 11, the breadth of the entry of the gate, 10 cubits, the length of the gate, 13 cubits, the space also before the little chambers, one cubit, and so on and so on. He measures the gate from the roof of one little chamber to the roof of another. He measures the post. He measures absolutely everything. Verse 16, even the little windows. You see W here at the alcoves, these little windows... God even measures these for Ezekiel. The arches around them and all the intricacies of it. And he says at the end of verse 16 that there will be palm trees on these posts. So there you have the outer court and the east gate into that court. He begins then to describe the outer court. You can see it written in your diagram. This is the outer court and this is the inner court and this is the temple here itself. So he starts to describe not just the gate but the outer court. It's probable that this ground will be covered in a mosaic. The temple of Solomon was covered in a mosaic. The king's palace in Shushan that we read of in the book of Esther was also covered in mosaic, and it seemed to be the practice of the day. Around here in verse 17, the second part tells us that there are 30 chambers all around this outer court reserved probably for storage. We don't really know what they'll be used for, but you can see the, the, the size of this thing then he talks about the other two gates these gates the uh, north yes the north and the south gate which are identical to the east gate and he gives us a really detailed figure of it all and then he speaks of the inner court here we are this is the inner court and there are three gates there the same east and north and south and he gives us a detailed description Of those in verses 28 through to 37. Then he talks in verse 38 through to 43. About the equipments that will be used in this temple. Equipment for sacrifice. He tells us that in this vestibule there will be eight tables. That's the northern gate and in the northern festival there will be eight tables for animal sacrifice. And also there will be four tables shewn out of stone that will be used for burnt offerings. And with all, on those tables will be instruments uh, to sacrifice and to pull these animals apart. In verses 44 through to 47 we find that he speaks of chambers for the priests. You can see at PC. On your diagram, these are specific chambers for the priests. Some of the priests will perform the sacrifices. Some of the priests will praise God and will have various other occupations within the temple. Then he speaks in verse 48 and 49 of the vestibule of the temple in the inner court. This part here, the entrance to the temple. He describes it in great detail. He talks about pillars that remind us of what it was like in Solomon's temple. And those pillars were even named Joachim and Boaz were the name of them. 1 Kings chapter 7. And chapter 40, really, we haven't even entered chapter 41. But if you could get this in your mind, you'll never be able to remember all those facts. But chapter 40 is to do with the surrounding area. He hasn't even touched the temple yet. That's chapter 41. And 42. But this is only the inner court he's talking about and the outer court, and he takes a whole chapter to deal with this in detail. Then we come to chapter 41, which details with the temple itself. Now, the question that I want you to ask yourself and all biblical scholars when you look at the intricate detail of everything about the inner and the outer court is if this is only spiritual, why all the detail? What's the point of it all? And then if it's typology, what does it stand for? Can you tell me what what this alcove, what this little chamber and storage room, what, what it stands for in the church of Jesus Christ? It cannot be an allegorical depiction of the church. As I've been thinking and studying this, it's ironic to me that a people who don't believe in a literal millennial reign of Christ on the earth, don't believe in this temple. They think we are the only temple that there ever be again. These are people, commendably, that, that are leading defenders and advocates and exponents of expository, exegetical preaching. In other words, going down the word of God and asking what it means. But yet when it comes to these passages in Ezekiel, they pass over it all as allegory. There's no explanation for any of it. Nobody ever tells us what these things mean. They just say, oh, it's the church of Jesus Christ. That's it. But why all the detail? I'll tell you why all the detail. Because this temple will be built specifically... To the specifications that God has given. In the word of God. I'll tell you why. Because Moses was told. With regards to the temple in Exodus 25 verse 40. Look. That thou make them after their pattern. Which was showed thee in the mount. And the same thing will be said to Israel. Look and see that you build it according to the pattern that was shown. Ezekiel on the mount. So let's look at the temple building. The third point. Uh, on your outline the actual temple this is it here and if paul would put up the third transparency there for a moment chapter 41 and verses 1 through to 4 describe the sanctuary this main part here forget about all this around here but the sanctuary this middle part and the most holy place and it is a direct replica of of solomon's temple to a t everything in it but also the tabernacle you would know that there's the main sanctuary the holy place And they're the the holiest place of all. It's separated into two compartments. It's twice as large as the tabernacle was in the wilderness. And the man with the rod in his hand brings Ezekiel into the sanctuary. And there he does the same. He measures everything out. But listen, only the bronze man goes into the holiest place of all. Ezekiel is left outside. You read right through, you find described in verses 5 to 11, these side chambers, all of them. As we read on, we find that you can't see it in this diagram, but if there was a 3D diagram, you would see that there are three stories of these little chambers. So multiply them by three up, and, up on top of one another and you get an idea of the size of this thing. They will increase, the Bible says, in size, as they ascend. verse 7 tells that. It says... If you put on the second one there, Paul, you look at the back of your outline, you're earning your money tonight. There's a building here at the back of the temple that we don't know what it's going to be used for. haven't a clue. It doesn't say. But it's a massive building, as you can see, and we don't know what what it is for. It's facing west. It's 70 by 90 cubits, which is about 122 by 157 feet, as you can see in your diagram. We don't know what it's for. But then Ezekiel goes into verse 15 through to 26. And he describes for us the decoration of this temple. And the furniture that will be in the temple. If you read carefully. We don't have time to go over it tonight. But there are two significant things that he mentions. One cherubim and two palm trees. This temple internally is decorated by cherubim everywhere and palm trees everywhere. The reason being, we've learned already as we've gazed at cherubim in recent days, that cherubim speak of the righteous government and holiness of Almighty God. Palm trees in scripture generally represent victory and righteousness. So you can see the two coming together. God's holy rule, which means victory and righteousness upon the earth. The cherubim are described as having faces, one of a a young lion and one of the face of a man. Now we know that they have a face of an ox and a face of an, an, an eagle as well, but the only two that are described here is the young lion and the face of the man. And I believe that that is specifically referring to the humanity of Christ as Messiah and his kingship in Israel as he sits on the throne during this millennial reign. The lion speaks of the king. And the man speaks of his humanity. But the specific thing that Ezekiel says is this cherubim is facing the palm trees. In other words, there's a significance that the Lord Jesus Christ's humanity and his his divine Messiahship in Israel have brought righteousness and victory to reign upon the earth. The angel measures it in verse 15 to 20. He measures the whole thing. And his measurement of it, we don't want to go into the detail of it, but his measurement of it would lead us to believe that Mount Moriah at this moment, this temple couldn't sit on. It's far too big. And a lot of the scholars therefore say, oh, there you go. It's not a real temple at all. It's a spiritual temple. But we must turn then, we haven't time, but I'll read it to you to Zechariah 14, verse 10, where it says... All the land shall be turned as a plain from Geba to Rimmon, south of Jerusalem. Some topographic event will take place that will flatten the land. The word of God teaches it. That will enable this temple to be built on Mount Moriah. He describes again the altar. He tells us, there it is there, a eh, on your diagram, that it is made of wood. And the angel describes it as the table that is before the Lord. And in our next study, we will look at why there is an altar in the Millennial Temple. You might think, I thought all sacrifices were finished forever. You maybe understand the book of Hebrews to teach that. but well, we look at that in our next study. But then he goes on and he talks about two doors in the temple here at the very entrance of the main building. And he speaks of the these two doors being of two panels, each also carved with cherubim and palm trees. Victory in the righteous holiness of God. And this vestibule here is to be covered over by a wooden canopy. It's a beautiful building. But these are details that I, I brought to you, not to load your memory, or overload your memory, but simply to bring to you how detailed this is. It must be a literal building, but there's something more than that I want to bring to your attention tonight, and it's this. This building is unique. It is different than any other temple that has ever been built. There are several articles and objects that are present in Moses's temple, in Solomon's temple, in Herod's temple, that are absent from the millennial temple. Now, I want you to look at your diagram and see that. There is no veil between the holy place and the holiest place of all. There's no veil mentioned in this temple. Why? Because through Christ at Calvary, there in those hours when he cried, Finished! The veil was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. And that's why there's no veil. Hallelujah! It will never reappear. Isn't that wonderful? There will never be separation between man and God, redeemed man, anymore. There will be no barrier to keep man from the glory of God, but the way is open that we can go through with boldness, without any fear, into the very presence of God. The furniture of this temple. If we could blow it up even more, we can't do that, but give us the temple there, number three, Paul. You remember the tabernacle, I'm sure you've studied it, and we see a a lot of pieces of furniture. You see the furniture and the implements and the candlesticks that's already being prepared for the tribulational temple. You don't have any of these in here. You don't have the table of showbread, which speaks of the bread of God. Why? It's not needed. We have the living bread. Israel will realize their living bread, and he will be there. They'll not need a type of him. He will be in their midst. There's no lampstands anymore. They're not needed because he is the light of the world and he himself personally will shine forth over all the earth. They're the holiest place of all. There's no ark of the covenant, there's no physical ark. Why? It's unnecessary because the actual Shekinah glory of God himself, he himself will hover over all the earth, the word of God says. His glory cloud that was once in the temple will be there again but over all the earth, and you don't need an ark. When the Lord Jesus Christ has fulfilled it. It's only a type of him. And fifthly. There is not one mention within this whole depiction. Of this temple. Of a high priest. Why? Why? Seeing then that we have a great. High priest that is passed into the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold our profession. That's why. He will be their high priest. And this has been a blessing to me. If you look at chapter 44, I know we're going out of a remit tonight. Bear with me. I want to deal with this in the time that we have. Ezekiel 44 in verses 1 and 2. He brought me back the way of the gate of the outward sanctuary, which looketh toward the east. And it was shut. Note that. Underline it. Then said the Lord unto me, This gate shall be shut, it shall not be opened, and no man shall enter in by it, because the Lord, the God of Israel, hath entered in by it. Therefore it shall be shut. You see this? Put the second one on there, Paul, for us. Thank you. You see this gate down at the bottom, which is the main gate, the natural entrance, which is on the east? God says, chapter 41, 1 and 2, that gate has to be shut. That gate is shut, God says, because that's the gate that God comes through. Now, what is he talking about? This is the gate, probably, through which the Lord Jesus Christ will enter this temple. we we'll look at it a little bit later, but as a mark of respect in ancient lands, especially to eastern kings, no person was ever allowed to enter into a temple or into a palace by the same gate that the king went through. That gate will be closed. Let me remind you of something else. Turn with me to chapter 10. We're going back on a study we did several weeks ago. Chapter 10 and verse 18 and 19. Remember the glory left the temple. Then the glory... Verse 18, of the Lord departed from off the threshold of the house and stood over the cherubim. And the cherubim lifted up their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels also were beside them, and so on and so on. And the glory of the God of Israel was over them above. The glory left the temple. And what God is saying here, listen, that is the gate that I left the temple from. And that is the gate that I will return to the temple in. And I want you to seal up that gate because I will never leave you again. Isn't that beautiful? And we see fourthly, your fourth point, the return of the glory of the Lord. Now I want to bring this all together. And please give me the time. Will you give me the time tonight to do this in about five or ten minutes? Here we have the glory departing. You have it in chapter 11, 23 as well. And you see that it moved to the threshold of the temple. It moved from the threshold to the Mount of Olives. And then eventually it left the whole nation of of Israel. I don't know whether you can remember. Turn with me for a moment to chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel. Chapter 21 of Matthew's Gospel. Verse 12. You remember the Lord angry at what they were doing in the temple. It says Jesus went into the temple of God. That's Herod's temple which was Zerubbabel's. And cast out all of them that sold and bought in the temple. And overthrew the tables of the the money changers. And the seats of them that sold doves. And said unto them it is written. My house shall be called the house of prayer. But ye have made it a den of thieves. Verse 17. And he left them. And went out. Of the city into Bethany and he lodged there note that the Lord was rejected by his own people and when he was rejected in his own temple the Bible says that he wrecked the place and then he left and I believe he left by the gate. for if you look and before I asked Arthur in this tonight I already believed this. So it's not because of what he told me. That's the east gate there of the old temple that the Lord lay. That is the gate that is blocked up at this moment that the Lord Jesus will return through at the second coming. The Mount of Olives is down here in the piano somewhere. Beth Fage is at the top, and over there is Bethany, and it says he left the temple and went to Bethany. And to my mind, the most natural exit he would have went through was the eastern gate. That gate is closed up tonight but that gate will be opened one day for the Lord Jesus returning and it will be closed up forever for he'll never leave his people again. More than that, go to chapter 23, verse 37 of Matthew's gospel. And remember, this is the gospel of the king. The gospel of the kingdom. He stands. Where is he standing when he says this? Where is he standing? The Mount of Olives. Where did the Shekinah leave? It went out the east gate. Where did it rest? The Mount of Allah. O Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together as a hen gathers her chickens on their wings and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you ye shall no more see me henceforth. Till ye shall say blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Do you see it? He left. He went to the Mount of Olives. And he left them. Desolate. And they are desolate today. But a day will come the Lord says. When I will come in the Shekinah glory. And the Shekinah glory today is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will enter the temple for good. And the doors will be shut. And he will be with his people as Messiah forever. If you look at verse 6 of Ezekiel 43, verse 6 to 9, it says, he will dwell forever in the midst of his people. No more, he says, will you practice harlotry and idolatry and the abominations in my house, the house of the Lord. And here's the key. Here's the reason why the Lord will do it. Verse 10, the Levites, sorry, verse 10 of 43. Thy son of man, show the house this to the house of Israel, that they may be ashamed of their iniquities and let them measure the pattern. They will be ashamed that they have rejected my son. They will look upon him whom they have pierced, the one who was rejected in the house of his friends, and they will be ashamed. But their glory will come again. They will see the pattern and the design and the arrangement of the new temple. And they will repent and they will be given new hope in the Lord Jesus. When they see his face, they will repent. The poet said, "'Tis the look that melted Peter. "'Tis that face that Stephen saw. "'Tis the heart that wept with Mary." Can alone from idols draw. It came from the east. That glory came from the east where it left. Ezekiel saw it now as he saw it in the river, beside the river Kibar. He fell on his face as he did at the river Kibar. And it says that the glory... Chapter forty-six or 43, the glory filled the temple as it filled the tabernacle. It filled this temple as it did in Solomon's temple and it stayed there. Why did it fill the temple? How did it fill the temple? Listen, that glory, the Lord Jesus will enter through the eastern gate, enter through the eastern door of the temple, enter into the temple for he is the brightness and the express image of God's person. What glory that will be a center for the king of glory Isaiah says it shall come to pass in the last days that the mountains of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains and shall be exalted above the hills and all nations shall flow unto it and many people shall go and say come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord to the house of God the God of Jacob and he will teach us of his ways and we will walk in his paths for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord the Lord from Jerusalem. Now let me put your mind back just for one moment. Where are these people? They're in a concentration camp in Kee, beside the river Kibar in Babylon. Their city has been burnt down. They've been taken captives. Their present temple is destroyed. But Ezekiel comes to them and brings them a message of good news. I couldn't help think today. That this is like the book of the Revelation to the church in the New Testament. Persecuted Christians. Downhearted. Being slain. And John comes with a revelation of Jesus Christ from God's Holy Spirit. And he tells them. Look up. When these things begin to come to pass. Then look up and lift up your heads. For your redemption draweth nigh. We can look up like Israel is going to look up one day. My friend, what are you going through tonight? What are you going through? Look up. The best is yet to be. And my friend, listen to what Paul said to Timothy. Listen. If we suffer with him. We shall also reign with him. Reign here. But if we deny him. He also will deny us. He's a wonderful savior isn't he? And I don't know about you. From my studies today. It has drawn worship out of my cold heart. this wonderful Redeemer in Christ. Oh, our Father, we thank Thee for the plan of salvation that we have been engrafted into this blessing through grace. People that were not a people are the spiritual people and temple of God. And Lord, it is a question that we must ask. If we are Thy temple today. How much of this great Shekinah is shining enough. But Lord we thank thee that there is a day to come. When Israel again will know thy glory. In Jerusalem. On Mount Moriah. And the Lord Jesus will come. And enter that gate. And it will be shut forevermore. There will never be another fall. Our father there will never be another curse. Jesus shall reign. Hallelujah. Lord we look forward to that day with birth pangs, our bodies and this planet cries out for its redemption. But we thank thee, like others around us, we are not without hope. For we have the hope of the word of God. And we say, even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen.